Good evening and welcome to Jewish Matters. We are in Exodus Unveiled, number six, and Parshat Mishpatim. How you do you build a society based upon Jewish values? And this week's Parsha comes immediately after the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. And what it's going to present to us is how to build a society. The Jewish people just became a nation. And now they're going to have to function together, and not just together, but as a uh, covenantal people, uh, as that we talked about last week. And this week's uh, Parsha gives us a wide range of sampling of the laws of the Torah, mostly societal laws. And it says these are the laws that Moshe placed before the Jewish people. And they're going to learn the parameters of civil law, not stealing, respecting property, how to function as a society. Now, it's called mishpatim, which is one of the words for laws. But the, another term also used is hukim. And there will be a parshat hukat later in the book of Numbers. Well, how did mishpatim differentiate themselves? So mishpatim are, according to most of the medieval scholars, what we would call the rational laws, the laws that a society might come to on their own, the laws that have a strong rational basis for understanding their meaning and having a practical purpose. That's opposed to the chukim, which are more of the uh, decrees, one might translate them, although we will have one uh, than separating milk and meat in this week's parsha, And... Uh, which is more of a chok, more of a decree that we don't necessarily understand the reason for, although even those we explore the reasons, but it's not what a society would come and just do on their own. That's one of the ways to differentiate between the two. The Parsha starts off very surprisingly with the laws of slavery of all things. And it's not a simple question to parse out how the Torah can have an institution of slavery. One way to understand it is this was not an ideal, but it was a reality in the ancient world. And so the Torah gives it protections, gives the slave protections and parameters. And in fact, Rabbi Shimshon Rafael Hirsch, the great 19th century uh, German commentary uh, commentator, says that the Torah starts the civil laws with slavery, because they are the member of society that are the most vulnerable, the most dispossessed, and have the least rights. So it's showing us and setting the parameters that even that person is protected by the law, does have a framework in which they have to function, in which the master would have to function with the slave. Now, this week's Parsha talks about Hebrew slaves. And just one more point is that once again, slavery is not an ideal. It's a reality that Torah tries to uh, put uh, direction towards. So this week's Parsha is the Israelite slave. And really, it's not even a, a total slavery. It's more what we would view an indentured servant. When would someone be in this position if they stole and could not repay the money? They would be, instead of being put in prison, like is done in our society, they are put in a home and uh, are living with people who hopefully are role models. 
they're renormalized into society instead of being put with all the other people who have deviated from the norms of society and often where they just reinforce each other and uh, sometimes might meet more criminal elements and peers in prison. So the Torah places them in a home. Another instance might be if a person owes money and cannot repay it. This is an opportunity to work, have room and board, and to be able to repay it. And uh, we're told that the slave had to live at the standard of living of the entire home. If you had a down blanket, the slave has to have a down, down blanket and pillow. So um, they are put into the home, uh, they have to work, but after six years, they go free in addition. It's with a time limit. And if after six years, they want to stay longer, they can, although the Torah frowns upon it. it. It said they have to declare their desire to stay. They are have their ear pierced and have an earring placed in. And the Midrash says that the ear that heard God say at Mount Sinai, I'm the Lord your God, has now compromised itself uh, and has to listen to a human master. So in a sense, giving up one's autonomy is a compromising of one's relationship to the Almighty. That's the way it's understood. And then they would stay until the 50th, the Jubilee, uh, the 49th, the Jubilee, 50th, the Jubilee year. So uh, the one area in which uh, it is more like slavery is that the master can uh, decree that they have to marry a Canaanite slave woman and the children stay in the home. The children, in a sense, are the master's property. And the Torah says, if this slave would want to stay with his family longer, he can. So um, from there, we move on to the laws of capital punishment. And there are many laws in the Torah that have a degree of, de 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 decree of capital punishment. Uh, the Torah starts off with a person kills another person. They're liable for capital punishment, which is pretty understandable. Um, then it says, if someone curses their parents, they're liable for capital punishment. And, and two verses later, if they strike their parents, less understandable, seems to be much more severe and maybe too severe. Now, the criterion to convict someone of capital punishment is that there have to be two witnesses who view it, who see each other. The person has to be warned. Do you realize by doing this, you are violating a capital crime? And if those criteria are not all met, then they cannot be convicted. Rabbi Elazar says in the Talmud that if the court carried out one capital punishment in every 70 years, they're considered to be a bloody court. Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Tarfin said, if we had been in the Sanhedrin, there would have never been an execution. So why does the Torah present these laws? It presents it, the commentaries say, to show us the severity, the seriousness of these transgressions. And so that it really sinks in. And uh, based upon that, there are three types of punishments if you will, three types of justice that are carried out. There's retributive punishment, which is uh, justice on a level of meeting out 
the punishment based upon the severity of the crime. And in a sense, sometimes, especially if someone wrongs us very badly, we feel like they should be punished in the way to the severity of what they did to us. Of course, we're not allowed to do it personally. That would be called revenge. But carrying out the Torah's laws is considered to be divine justice. And very interestingly, under the Reagan administration, when they were reinstituting capital punishment, a letter was sent to Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who was the Torah sage of the time, world leader, a renowned rabbi, and who gave legal decisions to people throughout the world. And they asked him about reinstating capital punishment. And what he said is that while, yes, normally in the Torah, there is, or in the Bible, it is, it is there, and it is part of a, the justice system. But what he said is very interesting. He said, in the Torah, the judges are picked based upon their integrity and based upon their knowledge and based upon their moral fiber. And we'll see more about that later. But he said, because in the United States, judges are political appointments elected, you don't have a criterion to have judges uh, to guarantee their integrity. I mean, there's never guarantees, but at least they're not even picked uh, necessarily for that criterion. And in such a setting, it should not be instituted. And one also wonders whether uh, behind that was also the idea that as divine justice, it might be carried out, but not as human justice. Okay. Now, the two other categories of punishment besides retribution are punitive punishment, where you are punishing the criminals so that they get a message. And there, um, one would view that you give them the least amount possible of punishment, but that will still have an impact and effect upon them. And then the third category is deterrence, uh, which is a societal consideration. You make an example of the person so that other people won't go and start committing such crimes. And uh, deterrence is a very interesting category because the king could exercise police power, arrest people, put them in jail, and even to the point of uh, bringing them to death uh, if he considered that they were a such a grave danger to society. So something to think about in terms of justice in the Torah's justice system. The next statement is a very famous one where it says that a person hurts someone, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a limb for a limb. And this has been very misunderstood because it goes on to say that, um, first of all, the oral law tells us that um, you, uh, this was never carried out literally that this is understood that they should pay a fine commensurate with whatever they did to the person. And it's very interesting that in the next law, it talks about an ox goring a person. And there also it says, uh, if you have an ox who's already gored, who the master should realize is a danger, and he kills someone, the owner is killed because his ox killed someone. Is he a murderer? So the oral law says, once again, no, he's not killed. He has to pay commensurate to redeem his life back. So there you see, and in other contexts of eye for an eye, that it was referring to monetary payment, not a literal statement. Okay. So speaking about oxen, 
the next category is damages. And it's very interesting because I started to think that in the general society school system, our children or even college students taught simply the laws of not stealing, of not causing damages to other people's property, of not harming another person. Uh, I don't believe it's universally taught. I don't know. I didn't have civil civic studies uh, when I was in school, went to a private school. And in college, it's certainly not a required reading. History of Western Civ might be. In the Torah, these categories are required reading. And, you know, every once in a while, someone says, oh, you know, my iPhone was stolen. And it just blows me away that someone go and steal something that isn't theirs. Now, of course, it's understood people who are destitute are desperate, but um, often it's not even people who are destitute. People see something lying around, they just take it. And it shocks me. So the Torah starts at the very basics. So if someone has uh, causes damage to another person, they're held accountable, but not just direct damage that you would do, uh, knocking over a person or uh, hitting them, but even your possessions. So the first case is a case of an ox. Um, an ox causes damage. It's not indirect. You can't control it. It's erratic. So there's two levels. If it's an ox that has never done this before, you're, it's a less severe punishment. If an ox that has done it before, we just said, it's much more severe. You're much held much more accountable. And it's understood uh, in general society. I know in uh, New York where I used to live, if someone's dog attacks someone I don't remember if it was two or three times, the dog had to be put down. So I once was almost bitten by a dog and uh, I tried to call the police and report it because this dog obviously might cause hurt to more people. The second category is digging a pit in a public thoroughfare. And this is a controlled situation, but it's you're more passive. Your property is not actively damaging someone. So you might think, well, you know, let them watch out. Look where you're going. But here, no, well, we also say that you caused this, you dug the hole. So it's not your property necessarily, but it's secondary causation, you're held liable. And the third category is direct personal damage. The fourth one is lighting a fire. And here you might say, well, you know, I light the fire on my property. It goes on to yours. That's not my fault. The fire has a life of its own. The Torah says, no, you were the causation of it. You were the original source. You're held accountable. So a wider consciousness of not hurting other people and not damaging their property. The next category the Torah moves on to is theft, is stealing. And common thievery, a thief has to pay double. He pays a fine, uh, obviously, to deter people from doing it again. If they steal... Uh, an ox or a sheep, an ox you have to pay five times, a sheep four times if you slaughter it or you sell it. If you took it and the person can get it back, then you have to simply return it. And uh, then it would only be a double fine. But um, uh, Rabbi Yochanan Zakai said, so what is the reason for the five and four times? Why different for an ox? than a sheep. Every law in the Torah, we believe, is there for a purpose and is orchestrated for a reason. So the scholars try to dig deeper into those reasons. 
in the Talmud, Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai proposes that you see that the Almighty respects even the dignity of thieves. When you steal a sheep, how do you steal it? Not that I knew this. Uh, you put it on your shoulders, whereas a cow you lead off. So he's already degraded himself somewhat, so he pay, pays less of a fine. Uh, Rabbi Meir gave a different reason. No, he says an ox is used also for labor as well as for the milk and for the uh, wool. So because the person is losing the labor of the ox, you have to pay even more. And Maimonides in the Middle Ages gives a reason that uh, these are animals which are most commonly stolen. They're put out, they're spread out to pasture. Uh, Sheep are actually shepherded a little more carefully, but cows can graze very far on their own. So the Torah protects them, uh, gives a special protection for them. And the other thing we have to realize is that uh, these animals were the mainstay of people's livelihoods. They gave milk, they gave meat, a very important resource. So all of this shows, says Rabbi Monk, that the Torah takes into account ethical, psychological, and pedagogical factors. That's really what uh, we're seeing in the wisdom of all of these laws. The next category of theft is a burglar who enters your home. And there are two categories. If someone comes uh, secretly, which means at night, the Torah says, you shoot first, ask questions later. They break in during the day when the sun's out. You first investigate. You f- and you, if you hurt them, you'll be held accountable. Unless, of course, they're going after you. So why the difference? So what the Torah says is that, what the commentaries say is that at night, the thief knows that you're home And so they are ready to be violent with you to get what they want. Whereas during the day, they're coming, particularly when they think you won't be home, so they're not looking for a conflict. And from here, we derive the larger concept in Judaism, which is someone is coming to hurt you, you can strike them first. This is a very basic principle, which um, sometimes the world forgets, especially in relationship to Israel. But the Torah uh, to, land, to the state of Israel. But the Torah is very clear that you can use force to protect yourself and your property, even with the taking of life, uh, should your life be in danger. So uh, we move on to property laws and uh, someone who is a custodian, who's a guardian, who's watching your property. So here it also depends on the category and the position. Uh, if they are not paid as a guardian, then they're less liable unless they're negligent. Uh, if you say, hey, you know, can you watch this till I come back? Now they're not getting paid, so they shouldn't be held more liable. But if something happens, they are asked to take an oath to make sure that they didn't do anything to the property. If they're paid guardian, or if they borrowed it to use it, then you're more responsible, even if it's not negligent. So based upon the responsibility is the accountability. That's really what it's saying. And um, the next category of laws starts to, interestingly, flips back away from societal rational laws to laws I would call of morality. Uh, Laws but more between man and 
God, so to speak. The first one is sorcery, which is forbidden because either it's a belief that there are other powers besides God, uh, even if it's a foolish belief, or according to some who say sorcery might actually work, it is using, manipulating those black, dark side powers, uh, and the Torah does view it that way, the forces of impurity to bring about certain results, and that is forbidden. So either way, it's forbidden. The next category is the prohibition of bestiality. And the Torah does intermingle morality, moral laws with ethical laws, so to speak. And this would be the ultimate lowering of a person uh, to, we use the term, person's animalistic side. So uh, this debasing of the person is also very severely offense, severe offense. And the third category is not bring offerings to other God. Now, why is that so severe? Because the Torah views that it's ethical laws between man and man come from a foundation of a belief in the divine, that this is a higher morality. And if that breaks down, then eventually the ethical laws will break down as well. The Torah does not believe that ethical humanism can have a lasting foundation, which will remain strong. Okay, the next category is uh, back to social justice and ethics. And here the Torah says, be kind to the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Israel. Sorry, in the land of Egypt. And uh, obviously it's showing an empathy because we had this experience, even we didn't personally, but our ancestors did. And they might've even gone through that experience to teach that lesson on the eve of our empowerment as a people, we were at the most disempowered state of slavery. And uh, there's a commentary, some commentaries say that 36 times in the Torah, if this law is mentioned, I haven't counted them, but it's even mentioned once later in the same Parsha. The next uh, teaching is not to exploit the widow and the orphan, once again, those who are the most disempowered in society. And it says, Torah says very something very powerful. He says, I will, God says, I will hear their cry and you will be attacked by your enemies and you will become widows and orphans. Your family members will become widows and orphans. So there we have the idea, not the vengeful God of the Old Testament, but a Torah that is telling us that committing these terrible offenses uh, would be uh, have the severity of being of being punished with the severity of what a person did. That's really the message. Then the next category of social laws is do not charge interest, which uh, really is for a whole talk in and of itself. But we know that when people start borrowing money and they get in debt and then they can't get out of their hole, uh, it becomes very debilitating and someone with money becomes richer. Now, uh, money lent in the right way can, of course, stimulate an economy, and there are certain legal structures set up through partnerships or through the courts where money can be lent, especially in business situations. But it's actually later in the Torah going to be said that it's a mitzvah to lend money to those who are destitute. Okay, now, laws of justice. 
It says, do not follow the majority, the evil majority to pervert justice, but do not favor a destitute person either in their grievance. Why? Because if you warp the law to the poor person, then the law no longer has teeth and it can be warped for the rich person as well. So the law has to be followed. Don't distort it either way. And uh, uh, later on, we're going to also say that a judge cannot take a bribe. Why? Because it says uh, that bribery blinds the eyes of the wise and distorts the words of the righteous. Why do you need two statements? Blinding the wise and distorting the words of the righteous. So Rabbi Dr. Avraham Tversky of blessed memory, who just passed away, a noted psychiatrist and uh, substance abuse therapist, um, explained it this way. He said, when someone is biased, okay, and the, uh, the bribery could be money. It could even be just holding the jo- door for a judge. If one of the plaintiffs holds the door, the judge has to rec- recuse himself because he might start liking that person and not judge them objectively. So it says there that uh, the two ways a person warps justice is how, uh, and their judgment gets warped, is through uh, denial which is blinding the eyes of the wise. We just ignore it or don't look at it or try not to think about it and ignore a part of the picture. Or rationalization, which is a warping the words of the righteous. So we warp, we find, we come up with rationalizations, justifications, and that is a distortion of, um, of justice. And uh, so we have to be very careful about having such bias. Uh, And once again, even to favor the rich person in a court case who might be inclined to get on their good side or to be overly righteous and change the law to overly protect the poor and disenfranchised person. Uh, Then it says you have to do justice even to a person who's your enemy. If you see your enemy's donkey lost, you have to return it to him. And if you see someone who you hate and their donkey is buckled under his load, you have to help him pick it up. Uh, there are two insights into this. One is the Torah's sensitivity to not causing pain to animals. Don't let your personal hatred get in the way of basic decency to this animal. And also it says you have to pick it up with him. If he doesn't make effort, you don't have to. But if he does, you do it with him. And they say, if two people aren't getting along, what's the best way uh, two workers aren't getting along? Give them a project to do together. It'll rebuild the bridges. Then the Torah says to just distance yourself from a false word, uh, which is a very involved topic because it doesn't absolutely say do not lie. And the Ten Commandments is not giving false witness, but sometimes you have to uh, not share the whole truth or even veil the truth to not hurt a person's feelings. There are other settings where there are uh, reasons why one has to do that for another time. So the next law is in the courts. If a person is found guilty, you can readmit new evidence to exonerate them. But if a person is found innocent, 
you cannot bring new evidence to change the ruling and make them guilty. Uh, and this law, biblical law, has carried over to Western society. It's called double jeopardy. And um, so we're always favoring uh, the person, the idea of someone of innocent until they're proven guilty, also very much the basis of the Torah. Uh, the final category here is going to be what I would call national religious law. Um, once again, it says, do not oppress the stranger. Then you have the law of the sabbatical year, the land lying fallow and poor people being able to eat fruit from any orchard on that year. Then you have the Shabbat where it says, even your servants, your slaves, no one should be working, even your animals. And then is the law of the, the holidays and coming to Jerusalem to celebrate where the entire nation would come together and it's a mitzvah to come to Jerusalem on the holidays when the temple was standing. And that's also to build national cohesion and to bring the first fruits. And then the Torah, the last law is, do not cook an, a, a kid in its mother's milk. The prohibition of milk and meat, the most simplest understanding is uh, that milk is a source of life. We're allowed to take animal life to eat it, but don't mix the two. You still have to have a sensitivity that life has been taken. So these end the laws, the end of the Parsha has a few other thematic uh, teachings which relate to the Mount Sinai theme and this point in the book of Exodus. And the first one is that God says, an angel will lead you into the land of Israel and will help you drive out the uh, those people who are there, the idolaters who are there, and do not make a covenant with them or follow their gods. Now, according to many commentators, this teaching comes after the golden calf. So to understand the structure, there are three partio, three sections that discuss Mount Sinai, the events there. Last week's Yitro, this week Mishpatim, and next week Kitisa, which is the sin of the golden calf. And really to understand the whole story, each of these three narratives form the whole picture. And But the order of them, there's a principle, the Torah is not necessarily in chronological order. So it then goes on to describe uh, Moshe going up with Aaron, Aaron's sons and the 70 elders. They don't go all the way up the mountain. Moshe goes up, God speaks to him. He writes down these words, and it's not clear, is this the, the Ten Commandments? And then it says they bring offerings and they take the blood and they sprinkle it on the people. And this is uh, really what the Talmud says is a mass conversion of the entire people. Now, when did this happen? The most likely chronology is Moshe goes up with all of them, receives the Ten Commandments, hears it orally, maybe writes it down, but not in the tablets yet, comes back down, does these sacrifices, converts the people. And then it says... There was, and that was the six-day period uh, where it says Moshe was on the mountain with fire and uh, clouds. And then on the seventh day, God speaks to him. That would have been the giving of the tablets of the, of the Ten Commandments. And then it says Moshe goes back up for 40 days and 40 nights. And then he comes down with the actual stone tablets. So, uh, but in the middle, it says, that they were on the mountain and they saw a sapphire, the ground translucent like 
sapphire, having some mystical experience. God did not put his hand upon them, even though they gazed at him and they ate and drank. Very cryptical teaching. Uh, was an offense that they ate and drank when they're having this mystical experience, or maybe it was the gazing at God, wanting to come too close that was the affront. It's not clear. But what we do see is that after an, a teaching of many, many laws and mitzvot, the Parsha ends with reasserting the experience at Mount Sinai and the idea that the Torah was given from God and what we'll also have to explore is the idea of the oral law, that not only the written teachings were given, but there was another corpus of material. And that's really what it's showing. You have the written law, but then it comes back to Mount Sinai to tell us Moshe went back up to learn more and more uh, of the explanations, the applications of all of these laws. But the main message is that even the civil law comes from a higher divine source, and the Torah gives us the wisdom of how to order society. Shabbat shalom and have a good evening.